Hello and welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. We're brought to you today by Tough Love Screenwriting, a brass knuckles, boots on the ground guide to building a paid professional screenwriting career. Written by veteran working screenwriter John Gerrell, available now on Amazon.com and there's a link on our site for your convenience. And for more great interviews and resources on the craft and business of writing, be sure to check out our companion website, scriptsandscribes.com. But first, we have on the show a lit manager and producer who got his start in the mailroom at Spyglass. He also worked in TV packaging at CIA for three and a half years before moving into development as an exec at Shed Media in 2009, where he launched their U.S. scripted television division. In 2011, he partnered with Lowell Shapiro, and together they formed Black Box Management. I'm very pleased to welcome to the show Mike Dill. Thanks for coming on, Mike. Thanks for having me, man. First off, we'd like to get to know you a little. Like me, you're an L.A. native, but while I stayed home for school, you actually trekked across the country to go to college at NYU Film School. Uh, what got you interested in the film business uh, and attending film school? You know, I always wanted to be in New York, and it was either SC or NYU. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was as much a geographical decision as it was anything else. Right. Um, the program at NYU, as I'm sure you and your listeners know, it's very much a conservatory, and that also appealed to me. Gotcha. Uh, yeah, I went to the other side. I went to SC. So uh, Nice. Yeah, nice. no, and, and we always looked at NYU film school as sort of that... Uh, much more production oriented. Just for again, I've never gone to NYU. Just from talking to NYU alums, it seemed like you guys were out shooting a lot of stuff. You got a camera, you went out there on the sidewalk and shot a bunch of films, whatever you wanted. And I don't know if that's the case, but at SC, you had to have production meetings with your teachers and advisors to make sure you had your insurance paperwork and your call sheets were done properly. And it seemed much more production paperwork oriented than NYU did. I don't know if that's the, actually the case or not. I mean, from what I've heard, that's totally the case. And from what I experienced at NYU, like you, you know, your first semester, they throw you out on the street with like this antique 16 millimeter equipment. It's almost like a rite of passage, Mm -hmm. the stuff you use in your first two years. And we actually, when I was there, the curriculum separated sight and sound in your two first semesters. So you Mm -hmm. didn't actually combine sight and sound until your second year of school. It's pretty intense. Yeah, gotcha. So after NYU, um, how did you get your start working in the industry? Um, I was doing freelance production stuff in New York. So I was, uh, I think I had worked my way up to like production coordinator on indie film stuff, some commercial stuff, some TV stuff here and there. Um, I got an opportunity to work as an intern at Spyglass. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a development intern reading, you know, three scripts a night, hustling around, doing whatever they needed, you know, odds and ends, whatever they needed to have happen there. And uh, after working there for three months for the summer, I got hired full-time to the uh, prestigious position of head of mailroom. Um, I, was, I was also the, uh, the only mailroom employee. Um, but, of course, <laughs> I jumped at that. It was a great, you know, yeah. a great company, a great team, and it was my way in. Cool. Now, going to film school at NYU, working in production in New York, what actually made you decide to sort of make that transition into representation? Uh, representation, um, is kind of the linchpin of everything. So it's the pivot point where you're able to deal with, um, with everyone. Mm -hmm. You can, you deal with the artists, you deal with the buyers, you deal with other representatives, you deal with the legal side, the business side. Um, you know, when I left Spyglass to go work at CAA, I wanted to transition to television to learn that business and to work in kind of a faster paced, side of the business um, with a bit more structure to it because, you know, feature development um, sometimes moves very slowly and lacks that structure. 
But uh, I also wanted to just get the lay of the land. So, you know, in a given day, you'll deal with writers, showrunners, actors, directors, studio executives, network executives, managers, attorneys, the full spectrum of everything. And that really appealed to me a lot. Cool. I read in The Hollywood Reporter that you said you like to work with people who you're going to spend time with inside and outside of a work context, because ultimately that's what's going to yield the best result. How important is it for you to actually like your clients as opposed to just appreciating their talent? You know, without naming any names, of course, have you ever turned down working with a client because you just didn't click with the person? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think that's important. I think it's really important on both sides. You know, the the relationship we have with our clients, no matter what their focus is, is, uh, is pretty intense because you're really in the trenches together. And if you're going to build something meaningful, it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of effort. And of course there are, you know, major ups and major downs and you need to make sure that, you know, you're partnered with someone who you have a shared vision with, but who you can really communicate well with and get along with on a daily basis. I mean, that's, you know, so much of the job is, um, having mutual respect, but also having that shared vision and communicating well. Mm-hmm. Now, I know it's sort of an individual thing in terms of what makes a manager-client relationship work. I'm sure every client needs something different, you know, so that's not really easy to answer on a case-by-case basis. But from your perspective, what is it about writers, other than strong writing ability, that stands out to you and as a manager and want to represent them? I mean, what sort of other qualities do an ideal client have? I mean, you know, obviously hunger is extremely attractive to us. Mm -hmm. Um, You never want to be hungrier than your client. You kind of always want to be on the same page with regards to the appetite, I guess. And I think um, ability to collaborate is also extremely, extremely important. Um, It's very rare that um, someone will write something that's exactly right for a buyer without any need for notes or development or a polish or whatever it is. Um, so I think it's, you know, it, that's always a learning process for new writers when we start to work with them. But, um, you know, the ability to take notes or collaborate with a producer or a manager or an executive, that's easily 50% of the job, if not more. Right. What, do you like to see or not see in a query? Like when you get a query uh, email? We've seen like every kind of query. And <laughs> I think it's, you know, it's just everybody knows it, but it's tough to grab someone's attention because mm-hmm. there's a constant flow of those things. And a lot of them just, they start to sound so similar and things run together. I think um, if you're succinct and you can express an idea um, that's to the point, but that actually stands out, that's your best shot. Um, I mean, the bigger, sort of the bigger thing there is queries are extremely difficult. And if you can find any way to get outside of that, uh, method of doing things and have a direct connection to someone, it's always going to be infinitely better. Mm-hmm. Cause really, you know, I mean, what's the best you can hope for is that you get, um, a representative's attention and they want to read your material. Um, and really our business is mainly a referral business. So it's like, you know, how do you get a connection if you don't live here, or you've never worked in entertainment, whatever else. Um, so that's the difficulty, but if there is a way to do it, it's always the better way to go. Right. And you're talking about ideally referrals and, and things of that nature. Yeah, exactly. So I wanted to ask from obviously your perspective, 
for newer writers who really don't understand how much work goes into your side of the relationship. Because a lot, a lot of writers send a query thinking, oh, trying to get you to read the script, not realizing that it's one amongst hundreds of queries you get and uh, dozens and dozens of scripts you read a week, not even including your own client's work and this kinds of things. Maybe you could just describe to me sort of the, an average week's workload in terms of scripts and meetings and, I mean, how much of your time is spent looking at queries and, and, uh, and material that's not belonging to your clients and not regarding projects that you're trying to get your clients on, you know, things like that. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, we're constantly looking at stuff. And for us, best case scenario, mm-hmm. something will appeal to us and we'll have great new material to read. That's what we want. Uh, you know, our week is uh, occupied by servicing our clients and servicing the projects that we're producing and client projects we're not producing. So your workload typically in terms of just, you know, man hours that are dedicated to reading is usually pretty high no matter what. And that's just your existing business and your existing client roster. So I'll say that we do read new things every week consistently no matter what but we're very pressed for time. So what jumps to the top of the pile? You know, Mm -hmm. it's a new potential client who we think is extremely viable or there's something to do immediately on. It's a new project that we think is worth our time or high quality or checks whatever boxes. But, um, you know, it's, it's also uh, very specific what every representative looks for. You know, we at black box, we have a defined brand and we have, um, We don't want to have too much overlap with our clients because we like to preserve a smaller client list. And I think you see a lot more of that now. But, you know, if it jumps out to us in whatever way that is, um, we'll make time for it. It just depends on the week and the project and the potential client. Mm -hmm. Now, let's say you request someone's material, a script. And before you get to it, now, obviously, that depends on your workload and, you know, various factors on how soon you get to it. But let's say before you get to it, the writer writes you back saying they have a new version, a new draft of it. Would you rather them tell you that? Or is it sort of unprofessional because of the fact that they've already sent you what should have been their best draft? Or do you not? Uh, I don't, I wouldn't call it necessarily unprofessional, personally, Mm -hmm. but I would just, you're just you're making a first impression and it's not the best one. You're already, you know, amending something that you've submitted. I would hold off on that unless you think it's an absolute game changer, night and day difference between the previous draft. I think it's always better to hold off. And really, you know, I think it's the focus there is try to get your material into the absolute best shape possible, whether that's, you know, asking five friends you trust, which so many people do a writer's group or having, you know, a friend who works, at whatever company, take a quick read. But, you know, that's always the key is do that work on your end first before you let it leave the door. Because, you know, typically, even for us, you know, with a project, if we're if it's something we're going out to studios with or if it's a TV project we're taking out or we're, you know, sending something to actors or directors for packaging, it's kind of like you have to live by the rule of you have one shot mm-hmm. um, and you need to lead with the best shot possible. Right. Now, in the same Hollywood Reporter interview, I heard you describe Black Box's brand as, quote, Death Row Records circa 1993, which is probably (laughs) the coolest company comparison for a management production company ever. Uh, What did you mean by that? I mean, I think for us, like, you know, we live in 
uh, a time where a lot of representation companies are corporate, and that's just by nature of the size of client lists. Um, and growing up in L.A. in the 90s as a teenager, we were always impressed by um, everybody on the on the death row label because the label spoke to a specific brand, and if they signed a new artist, you knew what to expect. And I think that for us, you know, of course, we're that's uh, that's aspirational, um, I would say. But uh, but we want to create a discernible brand here at Black Box, and I think that you know for us having to create a tight creative filter um, is a paramount concern, and it always will be. And and who who would be the Suge Knight of uh, Black Box? Who who should I avoid <laughs> pissing off at Black Box? Everyone. Okay. Our assistant Ashley is the Suge Knight here, actually. Awesome, awesome. <laughs> which is which is crazy because Ashley's awesome. Um, She's the say. best. Yeah. Um, Ashley, you just got a shout out. <laughs> um, now, Black Box, you guys are known for developing and producing content across sort of a wide range of mediums, not just film and TV, but, you know, sort of new media, branded content. How do clients benefit from having you cover so many different bases as opposed to just focusing on, you know, film and TV? I mean, I think for us, like our view of things is um, content equality, uh, which is a term I... Um, have used before but kind of just made up. I guess for us, if we represent a young filmmaker or a young writer, um, typically their interest is going to lie in more than one area. A lot of people you know, who are working in TV also want opportunities in film and vice versa. A lot of people who work, you know, this is specific sometimes to people on the comedic side, but they create short-form content on their own and they have, you know whatever, their own platforms, self-distributing, all of that stuff. And I think, like, for us, we just want to be able to service any great content that comes from clients. Um, and living all of the in all of those spaces enables us to do that. Um, you know, branded content for young directors and young filmmakers is extremely key and important. It's a great way to pay bills, but also um, they're great creative opportunities. Um, and I think that goes for... I think that goes for everyone. You know, I think, like... We produced our first digital series, I think it was three years ago, Mm -hmm. Um, and that was, we view that as meaningful as, you know, the TV stuff that we're producing and the feature stuff. For us, it's kind of, it's kind of all the same, it's just different opportunities, you know, and it should be, uh, it should be project specific and client specific for us. And they do seem to be sort of merging with, obviously, network and cable TV on one side, YouTube and the Maker Studios model on the other side, and then that sort of Netflix, Amazon Prime kind of in the middle. So it does seem to be uh, yeah, sort of that totally. integration there. Um, we get asked this a lot in terms of management of your clients versus producing. Um, how does that come into play, servicing clients and their material and projects that you're not attached to produce versus those that you are attached to produce where when is that decision made and and how do you guys uh, make that decision of you know we think this is something that we would like to be attached as producer and this is something that we're not interested or not going to pursue in that sense i mean for us you know we talk about this a lot and everybody has their own Mm -hmm. specific approach to this on the management side um it's something that's you know uh is on everybody's mind. But for us, we know that we can do more on a project um, when we are producing it. Our job is to 
sell projects for clients even when we're not producing, of course, and set projects up and, you know, get things going as representatives. So that we're going to do that no matter what. Um, but when you are producing a project, it just enables you to do more. You have a seat at the table to um, preserve the interests of your client, and you can be more active, whether it's, you know, on the front end, whether you're packaging and selling a project, or, you know, in the middle of the process when you're – right now we're um, – we're approaching uh, the point in the process on a project that we're producing at a cable network where we're going to be pushing for the project to be picked up to pilot. Mm-hmm. Um, and frankly, if I was only managing the client but not producing the project, there would be very little I could do. But as the producer, um, I can move whatever mountains I need to to get the project to the stage it needs to be at. Mm-hmm. So I think like it should always be, you know, in the beginning of the process, it should be a creative matchup for the project, and it should be something that everyone's um, comfortable with. But uh, but for us, it's most important that we're able to do whatever we need to do to push our client stuff forward. Right. Now, there's sort of a belief that the way the business works is they write a spec script, and they get a rep, uh, you know, manager and or agent, it sells and they write their next spec and it sells. And that's the way the business works. Um, Maybe you can go into a little bit more detail in terms of spec sales and, you know, using it as a writing sample and things, you know, development side, which is actually obviously much more the meat and potatoes of the industry. I mean, you know, if you can write something that someone wants to buy, Mm -hmm. great. Those, you know, that's not, we don't, it's not so common, but of course it does happen. Mm -hmm. But, the bottom line is that if you write something that is unique or high quality or special in whatever way it's special, um, that can launch your career, whether it's something that's going to get you attention with executives and producers and people at studios or something that's going to get you on the blacklist or something that really appeals to specific production companies who live in the horses, whatever it is. Um, but your spec is your creative calling card. And on the feature side, if you write one great spec, that can sustain, you know, a career for the next four or five years. You can get jobs. We had um, we had a script on the blacklist. I think it was three three years ago, mm-hmm. and that client has only ever written um, one original thing that's been out to the community, and we the client has had no time in. Uh, schedule-wise to do anything else since that happened due to the amount of opportunities um, coming in. Um, And those are, you know, it's anything from open writing assignments to uh, TV development to other feature development to consulting gigs. Everybody's, you know, your path is going to be extremely specific and the strategy should be specific to a client and what they do and who they are and their personality and what their, you know, goals are. but sustaining a career based off selling specs is just so uncommon these days, and really you don't you don't need to aim for that. I mm-hmm. think like we had a situation, and I don't know if this is you know what you guys normally do on the podcast, bring up specifics, but I can break down sort of something we encountered last year. Sure. Um, we had a spec that went out and got a lot of attention, and uh, we received an offer from a studio, and ultimately we decided to obviously in the right way, politely declined the offer from the studio in the interest of setting up the film with an independent financier and getting the film made. Um, so that's obviously a tough 
decision to make for, you know, for any client because that's so attractive to sell a spec to a studio. However, this was the right thing for the client and ultimately we all collectively believe that the yield of going this other route um, will be much greater. So it's when it comes down to it, it's like you want you want to focus your time, your attention, your effort, your creative energy on creating something great. Um, get that into the best shape possible. And once you really truly believe there's nothing else you can do to improve it, and it is where you want it to be, be and it's something you believe in, then you start sharing that, and hopefully that can be a piece that can change things for you. you know. And then if you have that great piece and you combine that with um, effective focus representation, that usually leads to good opportunities. Great. A lot of people spend their entire career, you know, mm-hmm. focused on uh, open writing assignments, you know, and that's sure. a great way to go. Um, it just it depends what you want, you know, and right. it depends where your head is at, and it depends the kind of stuff you create. Right, right. There's a question that comes a lot, and I don't think we've ever tackled it before, but attire. It's something that I think a lot of newer writers are curious about, but never it never really gets brought up. What would you recommend that a writer wear or not wear to meetings? Um, when you're going to meetings, you know, I guess for any meeting, there are the three specific goals, which are you want to educate whoever you're sitting down with, a producer, or executive, or representative, you want to educate them on who you are. Um, the second thing is, you know, why are you there? So if you're meeting an executive at a studio to pitch on a project, it's a project-specific meeting, um, you want to, uh, do the best job doing that. Or if it's a general meeting, it's just a get to know you thing, you know, you want to have that in your mind. And then the third objective of any meeting is to just whatever, create that relationship, have whoever you're sitting down with, um, want to consider you for projects in the future or, you know, get along with them really well, make a friend, whatever it is. Um, so if that's what you're going, if that's, if those are the three things you want to accomplish in any meeting, I would just do the best job you can to, brand yourself and dress in a way that you feel like fits you, your vibe, who you are. Um, you know, you're, if you're a writer and you're going to sit down with an executive, you're the creative in the room, so you can wear whatever you want. Um, I wouldn't say it doesn't matter, sure. but I would just say be yourself. Yeah. You can get away with, writers can get away with pretty much anything in right. terms of attire. Um, so just focus on something that you feel like is you and go for it. The only advice I've ever gotten on attire, uh, was just try not to be the best dressed person in the room. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, you know, if you really feel like you can pull off a suit, there was a, there's a writer who we shared an office with like a year ago mm-hmm. and he's super established and he's, you know, been nominated for things, but he, so he's at a different place, but he, um, he wears a suit everywhere, wow. but he pulls it off, you know? Cool. That's super uncommon, but if yeah. you can pull it off, go for it. What's the most outrageous or inappropriate outfit you've ever had someone wear in a meeting with you? <laughs> a writer? Yeah. Um, I don't even know. When I was an exec, we had someone come in in like shorts and flip flops, and <laughs> clearly some. I think his shirt was like had like grease stains on it or something. But he was hilarious, and it didn't really matter. It's so hard to go wrong. <laughs> It's so hard to go wrong. I would say, like, usually if it's if your attire is going to be awkward, it's because you're too formal. Right. You know, you don't want to show up to the meeting like it's 
some kind of formal job interview, even though sometimes it is. Right. Um, because if someone's going to buy into you as a writer and they want to hire you for something or represent you or have a bigger relationship with you, whatever, they need to buy into who you are as a creative. And that's really about, you know, who you are as an individual. Right. So it's, mo- you know, most people, uh, when they're left to um, dressing however they want, are just going to be less formal. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't totally matter that much. Just be yourself. Yeah. would be what I would say. Um, now we've got some listener questions. The first one is, when should a writer who has representation pursue new representation and how should they go about it? When they have come to the point where they know they need to. I think it's super important for, and we do this with all of our clients, but it's super important to establish what you want out of a relationship before you engage, before you make it official. Mm-hmm. So, you know... Sometimes a timeline is good. Sometimes um, benchmarks are great. But if you have signed with a representative and before you entered that relationship, you said to them or you said to yourself, I want to have new relationships. I want to have one project go out the door and I want to have, you know, develop one new thing. And, you know, in the timeline you set for that, six months, a year, whatever it is, those things didn't happen and that's time to move on. It's also just like you'll probably know when that time is. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's easy to understand when it's a good relationship and when it's not. And I think that no matter what, you know, there are a million variables, but um, if attempts are being made and the shots are being taken, that's all you can ask for. You know, it's, it's unrealistic to think that, oh, I'm going to sign with a representative and I'm definitely going to sell something no matter what in a six month period or a year period or whatever. Um, However, it's not unrealistic to say, I'm going to sign with a representative and I have this project that's almost ready and I want this project to get its shot and go out the door and be sent to executives. Mm-hmm. Um, and that comes down to making sure you're with somebody who's going to do the work and also making sure you have a shared vision of what the plan is um, and both sides are on the same page. Right. Um, and so how do you think if they're making that transition, they should go about it? What's the best way to go about it? I mean, for us, you know, this is also so specific to the individual, but for us, like, we're usually extremely transparent. We just communicate everything to clients. Um, I think that's the healthiest, best thing you can hope for. Um, So if a writer is represented by someone who they don't feel like is doing the best work or they don't think the relationship is a fit anymore, I mean, just say that, you know. Um, Just be straightforward, and if you think it's something that's, salvageable open up the conversation express your concerns and if you think it's just time to move on i think it, it you know the best way to go is to just be totally straightforward about it um everyone is interested interested in you know moving forward and preserving their time mm-hmm. so i think respecting somebody's time and you know understanding that with anyone you could definitely run into them in the future the best thing to do is just be honest right the next one is what happens when a writer blows their assignment I'm guessing that they're talking about like missing a deadline or maybe turning in a draft that's subpar. You know, what kind of damage control would a manager do in a circumstance like that? I mean, you know, we have to deal with that on a consistent basis. I think like for us, the way we view things is we work for the client and we'll do absolutely anything we need to do. And if it's running interference or buying additional time, I mean, we're obviously the buying additional time thing. We deal with that a lot. It's very, very common. Mm -hmm. Um, if 
if a draft comes in on a TV project or a feature project and the executives don't like what happened, the best you can hope for is that they feel like you were great to work with and you did your best on the job. I think for us, like, there's no matter what with specific projects, like there's going to be at times a disparity between what the executives wanted or their vision for the project and what um, the writer or producer wanted. But uh, it's definitely possible to blow something and have executives not want to work with you. Um, But it's also possible to address all of the executives' notes and kill it and do exactly what they asked of you and have them still not like it or still not, you know, move to the next stage with it. It's, if you understand on the front end that it's always a collaborative process, there's gonna, there are going to be too many voices and too many cooks in the kitchen, um, and that's going to be a given, then I think it's, uh, you know, it's a big part of my job, and it's also you know, part of the producer's job, whether I, that's me or somebody else on a project, to preserve the writer's voice while you're appeasing whoever the buying entity is. But a good producer does that. Mm-hmm. You know? and, it's, and I think a big part of avoiding that um, is communication, knowing what your executives want. If you get on a notes call and something's unclear, go find out the answers. Don't guess, and you know, continually express to them like we're gonna do, we're gonna give you um, the best thing we can possibly give you. The other thing is like, it's inevitable that there will be creative differences on projects. Um, it's also inevitable that you're gonna get terrible notes sometimes, okay. and it's inevitable that. Sometimes you just can't nail it or can't get it there for whatever reason. All of those things are salvageable if you have, if you run the right kind of interference, but also if you have, if you conduct yourself the right way and have a focus on preserving that relationship. It's always savable. The only thing that uh, you can't save is if somebody just is outright rude or refuses to do something, and usually there's no reason to do that. Right. You know, if we get a if we get a note on a project for a client, um, and it's just, we all just agree, like, that's a horrible way to go with this. We can either question it or explain our reasoning or try to find a way to preserve, you know, whatever the client wants to do as opposed to just caving and going all the way with the note. But if you do that in the right way, it's, it should be impossible for them to be mad at you, even though they might think, hey, he didn't get it here where we needed it to get with this project. Mm-hmm. If you could change one thing about this industry that would make your job a little easier, what would it be? That's a really good question. I think like for me, so I went to NYU, studied film, um, started working at a production company shortly after I graduated, and I had you know, very little insight on the way things actually worked. Um, and I think it's very tough to get that, um, no matter what film school you go to. I think USC does... Um, a different kind of job with that, but I think that most people, when they start at whatever their first job is, you know, if you're working in a writer's room or if you're, uh, you know, working in development or at an agency, whatever it is, I think a lot of people come in knowing next to nothing. Right. Um, and I think if there was like some way to have like a once a year convention where everybody who understands things comes and speaks to you know, every whatever 21-year-old who wants to work in film and TV, and we were all on the same page, Mm -hmm. um, I think everybody would be better for it. (laughs) And finally, what are your views on representing writers not based in L.A.? 
you know, we definitely have had and do have clients who aren't here, but it's just uh, infinitely more difficult because, you know, here's the simplest way to answer why it is difficult. Um, the way you get a job is somebody reads your script, they like it, and the next step is a meeting no matter what. You know, sometimes you start with a call, but if the project is moving forward to a place where you're going to get hired for something or they're going to buy something from you, mm -hmm. um, typically they will want to meet you. So that crucial step is uh, usually unwieldy and difficult if it's, you know, possible at all if you're not living here. The other thing that we hear all the time is, oh, you know, I don't live here, but I'm available to come for meetings when that's necessary. And the way things work with meetings is, you know, it's sort of... Uh, it, they usually come together quickly, and you'll need to be here in a moment's notice if it's a meeting on a job or something like that. And then, of course, there's the continual need, which is you should always be building relationships and you should always be meeting new people, and you just kind of need to be around for that. It's just right. tough to do if you're not here. So it's not impossible, but it is pretty difficult. Right. And don't forget And the, that's why you see that hesitation with sorry interrupt you. That's why you see that hesitation with representatives. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And don't forget the constantly shifting and uh, rescheduling meetings, which happens quite yeah. a bit too. Exactly. Um, yeah. You know. So that is if you're traveling to town just for that a handful of meetings and half of them get switched to the following week, well then are you gonna extend your stay a week? You know, it just it makes it substantially more difficult, I think. Definitely. Um, and finally, we've got a section at the end of the podcast called Reading, Watching, Playing, and Listening. Uh, and what are you reading for pleasure? Not obviously client scripts and things, but what are you reading? What are you watching? What are you playing in terms of like video games and things like that and or listening to? Uh, okay. Can we go backwards? Sure. Absolutely. So what was the last one? Listening. Listening. Yeah. Um, I'm listening to, I'll pull up iTunes right now. I'm listening to a lot of music from Chicago. Okay. So a lot of like Glow Gang, Chief Keef, Fredo Santana. That's what's at the top. That's I sort my iTunes always by date added, and that's near the top. Nice. Um, <laughs> playing? What are you playing? Are you playing any games? Are you a gamer? Nothing recently. Okay. Um, I actually don't have a setup at my house, so I am coasting on that cool no i mean i some managers are even like oh, i play something on my phone or you know whatever mm -hmm. it's just interesting to see what people are doing on my phone downtime. i'm totally way deep on two dots but when i got my when i upgraded my phone i had to start from scratch uh -huh. so now i'm working my way back up but it's extremely frustrating <laughs> i'm redoing levels but two dots is uh addicting and you can do it while you're doing other things yeah um watching any good films tv what are you addicted to Watching, um, I've been trying to catch up on a lot of stuff that came out of Sundance. Mm -hmm. um, and I've also just gotten into a zone where I'll, wa I'll burn through, you know, 10 to 15 Vice Docs in a week. That's cool. Um, that's, that's occupying a lot of my watching time right now. And, and that's something, Vice has a ton of really great documentaries. Yeah, it's great. And just the range, you know, their music docs are fantastic, but their, you know, foreign correspondence stuff is great. I think uh, a lot of what they do is pretty cool. And it's also tough to get um, some of that. It's tough to get similar content from other outlets. Right. right. And reading. Are you reading anything? Comic reading, books, books? This year, yeah. I have only spent time on client and potential client material. Um, gotcha. So I haven't even come up for air, but I hope I will 
very soon. Cool. And lastly, do you have any advice for aspiring screenwriters, or is there anything else you'd like to share? I mean, the only thing I would say is uh, I think a lot of advice given to aspiring screenwriters is like cautionary and sometimes uh, falls on the negative side. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, creating stuff that will eventually go to a larger audience is an extremely fun job. And, you know, the content environment changes all the time on a monthly basis, but there is a ton of opportunity out there. So I think it's important to stay positive, you know, always focus on creating the best stuff and figuring out who you are and sticking to that. But, uh, but there are so many opportunities now that they weren't, there weren't even like two years ago. So I think that that will, uh, things will continue to change, but, uh, but stay positive and, uh, and keep honing your craft always. Stay positive. I love it. Thanks for coming on the show, Mike. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. I hope that uh, I was clear and uh, that some of this is helpful to someone. No, absolutely. Uh, and you can follow Mike on Twitter at Mike underscore Dill. And if you have questions about the craft or business of writing, you can send us an email to ask at scriptsandscribes.com or send us a tweet to at scriptscribes. There's no and in the middle there, just at scriptscribes. Thanks for listening.